This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, there are three stories of tricksters. On the story of the coyote, you'll see that boulders really do appreciate good gifts. On the story of a Nancy, you'll see that it's impolite to not say you're welcome, but totally cool to punch someone in the face for not saying you're welcome. On the story with Loki, you'll see how a Norse god pilots his chariot with a glowing boar headlight. Then, on the Creature of the Week, you'll learn that you, for some reason, shouldn't trust a frog with talons and glowing blue fire eyes that hops up to you in the road in the middle of the night. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 32, Wager. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Some are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This week, it's three stories about tricksters. They aren't always the most powerful, or the strongest, or even the smartest, but these charming rogues have places in folklore all around the world. The first story today is about Coyote. As we've talked about before, Coyote is a trickster from many Native American mythologies. It's unclear whether he's an actual coyote, an anthropomorphic coyote, or just a man people call coyote. I personally picture him as an anthropomorphic coyote person, but there's justification for all three. He's sometimes a hero, as in the last story I told, but more often than not, his hijinks and trickery get him into trouble too. He's not an evil character, alignment-wise, but he gets by on his wit with a carefree, smart-alecky manner about him or sometimes it backfires and causes big problems for him. Coyote and his friend Fox were out for a walk. They had started in the early morning, and Coyote, upon leaving his coyote home, had walked the first few miles with a blanket over him to warm him against the morning chill. As the morning continued and the sun climbed higher in the sky, it became hotter and hotter. Soon, it was too hot to have a blanket draped over your shoulders. He and Fox had stopped to rest on a rock that was still cool from the night, and Coyote got up. He looked at the completely normal rock and draped his blanket over it. Coyote was tired of carrying it, and he had decided to leave it. He patted the rock and said, half-jokingly, Here, brother, you take this blanket. You are cold and poor and have nothing. Besides, you let us rest on you. Take it and keep it always. After giving this very nice gift to a rock, or littering, depending on your perspective, Coyote and Fox continued on in the warm weather. They walked and talked for about a half an hour. Late morning turned to afternoon, and the skies began to grow dark. Thunder cracked up ahead, and they could see the rain falling off in the distance. The pair began to worry. They were far from their homes and would be caught in a storm. Coyote looked up and saw a coulee, or a deep ravine, and said that he had an idea. He asked his buddy Fox to go get the blanket he left on the rock. They could hide in the ravine and put the blanket over them for shelter. Fox was faster too. He could get to the blanket and back before the storm came. Fox agreed and darted off to the rock. He got there and saw the blanket, still draped over the rock. He snatched it from the rock and turned to leave. Hey, Fox heard. Where are you going with that? Well, I... Wait, are you the rock? Talking to me? Yes, I am, he heard again. Now what are you doing with my blanket? Your blanket, Fox said. Well, Coyote needs it back. Well, he can't have it, 
The Rock said. It was a gift. A really nice gift that I am keeping. Fox shrugged. The boulder was right. It was a gift. He covered the rock again with a blanket and ran back to Coyote. They would have to find some other way to stay dry. Coyote rolled his eyes when he heard the news. What an ungrateful boulder. Coyote only needed it back long enough for the rain to pass. And then he would drape the wet blanket back on the rock, that being totally the same as a nice dry blanket. Coyote stormed up to the rock, angry that he was already beginning to feel the rain drizzle on him. He saw his blanket on the smooth, large boulder and pulled it away. Hey, that was a gift, the rock said. And what do you need it for? You've been out in the rain and snow all of your life. You're doing fine. Deal with it, Coyote said. And he left without looking back. He made it back to the ravine before the rain started coming down in earnest and was only moderately soaked by the time he threw the blanket over himself and Fox. They weathered the weather together and soon the storm ended. Both Coyote and Fox shook off the rain and Coyote wrung out the blanket and tossed it aside. They continued to the river in the humid, post-rain weather of a summer day. When, behind them on the hill, they heard trees falling and being crushed. It sounded like something big was bounding through the forest. Hey, little brother, Coyote said. Go and check out what's making that sound. Fox was curious as well, and he hopped into the forest. He was only in there for a few minutes when he shot out in terror, scampering as fast as he could away from the woods. Run, Fox yelled. It's, it's, it was a gift, they both heard before the trees at the forest edge exploded outward and then were crushed under the weight of the massive boulder rolling from where Coyote had left it. Fox was running for his life away from the boulder, which was crushing everything in its path. Coyote turned and ran too, as fast as he could. He didn't dare look back to risk slowing enough to be crushed. But if he had, he would have seen his buddy Fox diving into a hole. Unfortunately, even the small, quick Fox was too slow, and the tip of his tail was pinched by the boulder. The hair turned white, as it apparently will whenever pinched by a boulder, and, as we all know, that's why foxes have white hair on the tip of their tails. The boulder was still yelling that it was a gift. Why did Coyote have to take back the blanket? Cody ran and ran through the fields until, up ahead, he saw two massive grizzly bears. He yelled for them to run. An angry boulder was on his heels. The bears laughed. Maybe for little Coyote this boulder was scary, but they were some of the biggest animals out here. They could stop the thing. They yelled out for Coyote to get behind them. They have this. Coyote ran past them. The grizzlies were nearly fur boulders themselves. They could stop it. When he had run just a bit further, he turned around to see them stop it, but only watched in horror as the boulder crushed the two creatures, barely slowing, and continued on after Coyote. If bears couldn't stop it, what could? Coyote ran and ran. The boulder splashed through swamps, crashed through forests, and seemed to skim along the plains. Coyote's limbs burned, and he felt like he couldn't breathe. Every so often, one of Coyote's animal friends tried to help him, and every so often, they died. The buffaloes tried to headbutt it, but their skulls cracked. The snakes tried to help him out and form a net to stop the boulder. I'm thinking like those string games people did in grade school, like Jacob's Ladder and all that. 
but the boulder just shredded the snakes and kept on coming. Cody ran across the prairie, and there were times when the boulder was right behind him, scraping his heels and still very angry about the blanket. Then, up ahead, he saw two witches that were cutting down trees with their axes. He yelled out for them to save him from the boulder. They turned and nodded, and yelled out for him to duck as he came by. As he ran to them, barely able to keep going, he ducked as they said an incantation and swung their axes at the boulder, just behind him. With a bang, it was shattered to pieces. The talking boulder died the way it lived, blanketless. Knowing it was over, Coyote tumbled forward, disheveled and weak, like a heap of overcooked spaghetti. He lay there on the grass, staring up at the sky. That was lucky. Good thing there were witches with magic axes out cutting wood. Wait, witches? That's when Coyote's ears pricked up. He only heard snippets of the conversation, but he definitely heard, nice and fat, and let's eat him, which was enough. Coyote acted like he didn't hear them. They were able to crush a boulder with magic axes, so Coyote didn't like his odds. He was almost too weak to move, though, and exhausted after running many miles. The witches, seeing Coyote laying there, came up to him, and they told him that they would help him recover his strength. Just rest here, and they would love to have him in their teepee. Them saying it exactly as sketchy and as loaded with portent as it sounds. That would be great, Coyote said. They told him to wait out here and they would go make preparations for dinner. Hear them in the teepee grinding their knives in preparation for stringy, gamey coyote meat. He looked around and couldn't see any solution. They kept popping their heads out every so often to make sure he was there. But then he finally found one possible plan. But there was no way the witches could be this dumb. He struggled to his feet, his muscles still sore from the unexpected workout. He walked over to their water pails and just tipped them over. There was no way this could work, he kept telling himself. He yelled to them in their teepee that he needed water. Did they have any? They yelled back, yeah, in the pails. He yelled back that they were empty. One of the witches came out and saw that they were, in fact, empty. Huh. She thought her sister had refilled it. Coyote picked up one and said that he would go down to the river to fill it. They would need it for dinner. The witch said, yes, we will all need it when we eat dinner, snickering. Coyote looked at her. They were really excited about eating him, and not subtle at all. She told Coyote he could go, but come back soon. They would need him here to eat. Coyote rolled his eyes as he walked toward the river with the pail. Hopefully, maybe, they were this dumb. And, as it turns out, they were. As soon as Coyote looked back, he saw the witch go back into the teepee. He ditched the pail and took off as fast as his burning legs would take him. A half an hour later, when he didn't return, the witches got into a fight about letting that delicious coyote go and killed each other. Before moving on, if anyone out there listening has ever eaten coyote, what does it taste like? I read that it can be pretty okay if prepared properly, but I also read that it's comparable to eating rats, and not even buzzards will eat a dead coyote. I'm honestly and earnestly wondering about this one. Anyway, after a couple miles, coyote calmed down and he jogged to a stop. He started to recognize the area. He was closer to home than he thought he was. He also found the river that he and Fox had set out to find and took a long drink. 
There, he found a team of turtles swimming in the water, and one turtle in particular sitting on the bank, doing his stretches with his little stubby turtle legs after a long run. The turtle turned to Coyote and said, I saw you jogging up. You like to run? You pretty fast? I, I guess, Coyote said. Oh, cool. You're talking to the fastest turtle alive. The little turtle, finishing up his stretch, said to Coyote, Oh, okay. Hi. If you're a pretty fast guy, you want to race? The little turtle asked Coyote. Wait, what? You're a turtle, Coyote said. But the turtle appeared not to hear. We can make it interesting. You bring your Coyote buddies, and we can make bets on the race. Coyote was confused. He did not take issue with conning a turtle out of a lot of money, but even he had to say something. But you're a turtle, Coyote said. Oh, so because I'm a turtle, I'm slow then, said the turtle. Well, yeah, said the coyote. I mean, turtle is almost synonymous with slow. I'll have you know that I'm the fastest turtle, the little turtle said. Well, you're still a turtle, so... If I'm so slow, then it shouldn't be a problem for you, right? Big fast coyote. What do you have to lose? Except your pride and money when you lose to me. Coyote narrowed his eyes. He was through feeling bad for the little guy. The turtle was almost asking Coyote and his coyote friends to take all their turtle money. So that's exactly what they would do. Coyote told the little turtle that they would race, but it would need to be tomorrow. Coyote still had a long walk home, and he had to outrun a boulder today. This time tomorrow, the turtle nodded, slowly, and Coyote went on his way. The next day, Coyote came with all of his coyote friends ready to make bets on what was very much a sure thing. The turtle was late and alone. So where are all your turtle friends? Coyote said smugly. Well, they, they didn't want to bet against a coyote in a race against a turtle. Your friends are smart, Coyote said, but the turtle was unfazed. He still bet on himself, and all the coyotes were happy to jump in and take all of his turtle money in the event of his almost inevitable loss. The pair lined up at the starting line, and though Coyote was sore from running away from a boulder just the day before, he was pretty confident. One of the coyotes yelled for them to go, and the race started. Coyote took off, and the turtle moved as quickly as a faster-than-average turtle would move, which is still pretty slow. Coyote was soon almost out of sight, and he looked back at the turtle, but couldn't see him. He looked at all of his coyote friends who shrugged. They had no idea what was going on. Then, Coyote heard a whistle from up ahead. He turned around and saw the turtle, about 30 feet in front of him. The turtle waved his stubby little turtle arm. Coyote furrowed his brow and ran up past the turtle. When he was far past the turtle, he looked back again. Coyote didn't know how the turtle had passed him, but it had just been a fluke. Or so he thought. The turtle was, once again, gone. Coyote's jaw dropped when he heard a whistle up ahead. Again. It was the turtle. How had the turtle passed Coyote so quickly without him noticing? He, once again, sprinted past the turtle. That happened about seven more times, until Coyote was about a hundred yards from the finish line. He looked up ahead of him and saw the turtle slowly crossing the finish line. Coyote ran as fast as he could, but it was too late. The turtle had won the race. Coyote and the others were dismayed, but they paid the turtle an exorbitant amount of money. They were angry at Coyote, and he was confused. They made him walk back to their Coyote village, alone. Trailing behind his friends, 
Coyote heard a crack of thunder off in the distance, and, as the rain began to come down, he wished he had a blanket. Back at the trail, where they had raced, the turtle was counting out all of his winnings. When he was sure the coyotes were out of earshot, he whistled a long, loud whistle. Looking down the trail, nine ugly little heads popped out of the bushes, just at the points where Coyote had seen them appear and then disappear, and they all walked very slowly down the racetrack to the turtle at the end to count out their money. That's the story of Coyote and the Boulder, and the story of Coyote racing the turtles. They aren't together in folklore, but I put them together for the story. Personally, I love stories of the Coyote. He's a trickster, yes, but most of the time, like Loki, his tricks end up backfiring on him in really funny ways, like today. I liked how the turtles tricked the trickster and essentially conned all the coyotes out of a lot of money. The next story is from West Africa about a Nancy, the spider, and that will be right after this. You know that great idea you have? The one that you've been sitting on? The one that everyone agrees is amazing, but now what? Time to get your idea out in the world with your own professional quality website, blog, or online store. That's why I want to share how easy it is to get started with Weebly. Okay, so long-time listeners who have gone to the website might remember it being down. A lot. Designing and running the site has, by far, been the biggest time suck of this whole podcast endeavor. I wish I had known of Weebly back when I started the site. You don't need to know how to code or anything, and you can still get this professional level site that works perfectly on mobile, something I'm still working on with my WordPress site. You can easily drag and drop things and publish your site in no time from any device. When it comes to building a website, you can do it all yourself, but for actually way less time and money, you can go with Weebly. Seriously, as someone who has done it all himself, I can honestly say, do not do it all yourself. Go with Weebly. So yeah, creating a fantastic website shouldn't get in the way of your dreams. Join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free at weebly.com myths. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash myths, M-Y-T-H-S, weebly.com slash myths. The next story comes to us from many different cultures. It is a story of Anansi, perhaps the most famous of the stories of Anansi. It's of how the world got its stories. Like Coyote, there are many different ways that Anansi is depicted. He's either a spider, a non-radioactive Spider-Man, or just a man. You can find pictures of all three and find support and stories for all three. Anansi originated in West Africa, but his stories have spread all over the world, largely because of the Atlantic slave trade. The stories came with people of African descent to North America and the Caribbean, and they have morphed to become seemingly different stories altogether. We'll get into the spider tales more at the end of the story, because it will make much more sense then. Anansi climbed his sticky spider web up to heaven to see his father. The Spider-Man had heard of the stories. He didn't hear the stories. No one had heard the stories. They belonged to his father, the sky god, Niame. He kept all the stories, and I guess the ability to form a narrative, in a locked wooden box far up in heaven. The stories belonged to Niame, and Anansi wanted them. He wanted them to be Anansi's stories, and his father laughed in his face. The stories were far, far too expensive for his little spider son. Anansi pushed him, though. How expensive? Put a price on it, Dad. 
What's it going to take for me to leave with that box of all the stories in the world today? Niame thought about it. He didn't want to give up the stories, so he put a price that no one could meet. To get the stories, Anansi would need to bring him Onini the Python, Osiba the Leopard, the Mbura Hornets, and the invisible fairy, Momotia. Anansi looked at his father, shrugged, and said, Consider it done. Climbing back down his web, Anansi returned to his wife, Aso, and he told her all about the four creatures he needed to catch to get the stories. She smiled her spider smile and told him how to get the first creature, the fearsome serpent. The next day, Anansi was walking through the jungle, holding a long stick and muttering to himself that, no, it can't be. Yes, it can, but no. Soon, the massive snake dropped its head down from a tree. What was the spider arguing with himself about? Hmm? Anansi said, oh, it's not with myself. I got into an argument with my wife, Aso, about whether or not you're longer than the stick I'm dragging here. I thought you were bigger, Anansi said, but my wife said you weren't. I came looking for you to see. The python looked at the stick. It was long, but he was Onini the python. Of course he was longer than the stick. Right? Of course he was. All right, Anansi, he said to the spider. Let's win that bet. The snake stretched out next to the stick. Anansi sat back and looked. Hmm. The python wasn't quite long enough. Wait, the python wasn't perfectly straight on the stick. His body naturally went in waves in places. Anansi snapped one of his spider fingers. He knew what to do. He ran off and got a length of vine. Anansi returned with the vine. Okay, he said to the snake. I'm just going to loop this around you to straighten you out. I think we can make this work. Yeah, definitely, said the snake. Just do what you need to do. Anansi looped the vine tightly around the python's body. When he got to the head, he told the snake that it might be a little uncomfortable, but they were almost there. He just needed to tie the snake's head down so that he could clear the end of the stick. The snake said again that Anansi should do what he needed to do. The python wanted to win too. Anansi pulled it tight and the python saw the tip of his nose go past the end. All right, we did it, the python exclaimed. You can loosen your grip, Anansi. Anansi? Oh, I did, the spider said. I just tied it off so I don't have to keep holding it. Oh, okay, the snake said. Well, we did it. You won your bet. I'm longer. Now let me go. Oh, yeah, Anansi said. There never was any bet. This was just a way for me to capture you without having to fight you. The python instantly became angry and thrashed against the vines, but it was too late. He was trapped. After Anansi dragged the python up to heaven via his web, he set out for the next creature. Anansi had to capture the leopard. He didn't waste any time in talking to his wife, and she told him what to do. Anansi could hear the leopard roaring from the pit. He had dug a pit in the plains where the leopard lived, and sure enough, the next day he came back to find the beast stuck at the bottom of it. From the bottom of the pit, the leopard saw Anansi's head peek over the edge at the top. Anansi, wait, the leopard yelled. He needed help, and Anansi was the only person he had seen all morning. The leopard didn't know who had dug the trap, but he had fallen for it. Anansi said that he would be happy to help, and he had just the thing. He lowered a rope down to the leopard, who grabbed on tight. Anansi pulled him up. When the leopard got to the top, he found that it wasn't any ordinary rope. It was Anansi's web, and the leopard couldn't get his paws unstuck. He turned to Anansi, but the spider was already at his back legs, looping the sticky line around him and playing it tight. 
The leopard yelled at him. What was that? But Anansi put a stop to that, calmly looping the line around his mouth, silencing and muzzling him for the long trip up to heaven. The third creature was the Maburo hornets. After talking to his wife, we find the wily spider outside the home of the hornets. The rain was pouring down, and since hornets didn't like the rain, he was yelling for them to hurry up and get in the gourd he had. Since the rain was unexpected, the hornets didn't have any plan for it, so they rushed into the hollow gourd. Only for the rain to stop and for Nancy to put a sticky wad of his webbing on the entrance to the gourd. He had filled up a calabash with water and poured it over the house, making them think it was raining. The third task was now complete. Those stories were as good as his. The fourth and final task was to capture the invisible fairy, Momotia. And when Anansi learned of this, he, again, went to his wife. She gave him a wooden doll and a plan. Really quickly, this last one is sort of apocryphal. It's in some versions, but not others. It's really similar to a briar rabbit story, which you might recognize. He set the doll underneath the odom tree, where fairies were known to play, and he covered it with sticky sap. He also wrapped a small rope around its neck. At home, he had mashed up some ito. It's a sticky food made from yams, eggs, and palm oil, which fairies really like to eat. I found some modern recipes where it's sort of like a mashed plantain with a hard-boiled egg on top, which actually sounds pretty good. Anyway, he placed some of the food in the doll's hand and at his feet, and it wasn't long before the fairy and her friend appeared before the doll and asked politely if they could have some of the ito. Anansi, on the other side of the tree, made the doll nod with the rope, and they began to eat. They ate and ate until the sticky Ito was on their hands and face and nowhere else. They said thank you to the doll and waited for the strange brown creature to acknowledge their thank you. But it didn't, because it was made of wood. I said thank you, the fairy said, and waited. But the wood, being incapable of talking or sentient thought, just sat there, oblivious to its extreme rudeness. The fairies were not oblivious. I think this little man thinks he's too good to talk to us, the fairy's friend said. He's being impolite. Hit him in the face. In a world where not acknowledging a thank you is somehow more impolite than assaulting a stranger that just gave you a nice meal, the fairy hit the doll in the face. Hard. Hard enough to become stuck in the sap that Anansi had slathered all over it. He grabbed my hand, the fairy shrieked. Hit him again, the friend said. The fairy scowled and hit the doll with her other hand, which also became stuck. Kick him, kick him in the face until he lets you go and acknowledges our thank you, the friend yelled, and the fairy, in her rage, complied. After two kicks, she was stuck. Okay, no, seriously, I'm stuck, she said. He has me. You need to help me, the fairy said to her friend, who was already in the process of flying away. He's too tough for us. You're on your own, the fairy yelled before she was out of sight. The stuck fairy, Momotia, only had moments to sit and wonder about her fate before a Nancy appeared on the other side of the tree. A Nancy was climbing down his web from heaven. The payment had been made, and Niame had to acknowledge that a Nancy had met his price. Begrudgingly, he gave Anansi the simple wooden box full of the stories of the world. When he got home, he and Aso sat next to each other and cautiously opened the box. One by one, they started taking out the stories and sharing them with one another. They were funny, touching, 
bizarre, and tragic. Every night they sat and told each other the stories they found in the box. One evening, they looked at each other and knew that they couldn't be like Niame and hoard the stories for themselves. The next evening they went out, gathered the humans and the animals around a fire, and shared the stories. They, in turn, took the stories and shared them themselves to people who told others. Soon, all the world had stories because of one brave, tricky spider and his intelligent wife. I've read that in Ashanti oral culture, Anansi Sim, a word meaning spider tales, has come to be synonymous for many types of fables and folklore. And after hearing the story, it makes sense. Honestly, it's a bit difficult to give a full picture of Anansi. He's spread throughout the world, and there's the West African version like above, but there's also the very prominent Jamaican version. Anansi was apparently a symbol of slave resistance and survival in the Caribbean, according to some. He was seen as a way for slaves to assert their identity within the boundaries of the plantation power structure. All that to say, there's so many different cultures and people that tell these stories that there's no one Anansi. I feel like this is a situation where the best stories are not the ones necessarily published on the internet, but still told out there. So if you have a story of Anansi that you'd like to hear on the show, please point me to it, write it to me, or go to stories.mythpodcast.com and record it for the next listener-submitted show. The next story is from Norse mythology. We've talked about all the characters before in The Wedding of Thor, which is episode 24. Basically, Thor and Loki are Norse gods, called Aesir. Thor is a warrior and more serious, while Loki is a trickster and not really serious at all. This is the story of how Thor got his magnificent hammer, named Mjolnir. Loki looked down at the severed braid of Sif's hair. Sif stood there, her eyes wide and anger growing. Not only that, but her husband of legendary renown, who you will know as Thor, was storming toward Loki. This had seemed like a good idea, Loki thought to himself as he considered the amount of pain that Thor and Sif were about to bring him. Why had this seemed like a good idea? He told Thor to hold on, hold on, this was planned, I'm getting her better hair. Loki saw Thor pause for a moment. Yes, he continued, better, way better. This was blonde and looked like gold, right? I'm going to get her hair of actual gold. That's my gift to you. That's why this was planned and absolutely intentional and thought out, and not because I just wanted to keep way too much of your wife's hair. Thor agreed it would be weird if he just cut his wife's hair for no reason, and he promised to break every bone in Loki's body if Loki didn't make it right. Making it right, of course, meant a trip to the world of the Dark Elves, or the Dwarves, they're basically synonymous, so they could craft Sif this very expensive living wig. It's not said what the payment for the hair was, but Loki also talked them into making two other treasures for the Aesir. One was a ship, called Skiblanir, that was the fastest in the world, and one that always had a favorable wind. The name literally means, assembled from small pieces of wood. It was also extremely portable, and when you weren't using it, it can be folded up like a piece of cloth and put in your pocket. It sounds nice, but as someone who has problems folding a bedsheet, I can't imagine how hard a full-sized ship would be. The other treasure was called Gungir, which means swaying. It was the deadliest of all spears. It will be Odin's weapon at Ragnarok. Loki, 
presumably uncomfortable with everything working out for him without him getting pregnant or becoming Thor's bridesmaid, decided to press his luck. He went up to two dwarven smiths and told them that he would bet his head that they couldn't make three things even equally as good. The two brothers didn't even need to talk before accepting the bet. They both blurted out at the same time that they'd do it. Loki was always coming around here and causing trouble, and the possibility of beheading him was almost too good to pass up. Loki graciously left them to their work. But then a giant horsefly that looked remarkably like English actor Tom Hiddleston flew in and watched the dwarves, a literal fly on the wall. The fly began to sweat, but in a metaphorical sense, because flies don't actually sweat, because he saw the dwarves were pulling it off. One of them was actually almost finished, making a shining boar with golden bristles. That was way cooler than just golden hair. The fly, who definitely wasn't Loki, flew down and bit one of the dwarves on the hand. But the dwarf just kept on going, and completed the item that we'll talk about later. This happened two more times. When the dwarves were doing well, Loki would try to distract them, first with a bite on the neck, then the eyelid, but to no avail. Everything in the forge avoided ruin. The three legendary items were complete. The dwarves packed up the hair, the spear, the ship, and the three other things, and went to Asgard, where they happened to find Loki. The dwarves reminded him of his agreement, and they unveiled the things that they made for the Acer, who would be the judge in the matter. The ship we know about, and Odin's spear we talked about too, the hair too, wasn't just a magical wig. It would take root on Sif's scalp and be growing golden hair. Narrowly averting one disaster, Loki saw Thor nod at him. He would refrain from breaking all of Loki's bones. Today, Loki watched on as they showcased the next three, supposedly equal, treasures. The first was a golden-haired boar. Not only was it a golden animal, but it was a light in dark places for when all other lights go out. It could race across the sky and illuminate even the darkest worlds. This was given to the god Freyr, and he rode in a chariot, his way illuminated by one lone, glowing boar headlight. Next up was a magical ring for Odin. The Lord of the Rings illusions are strong with this one, because, as you're no doubt shocked to hear, this was no normal ring. It wasn't a cursed or tempting MacGuffin, though, but it just made more rings. Every ninth night, eight rings would fall from this ring. That's it. It just made its owner, Odin, even more impossibly rich. Still, Odin liked being rich and becoming even richer, so he liked the ring. The last item was hidden until the very end. It was the crowning achievement, and it was for none other than Thor. Thor stepped forward, and they laid the magnificent hammer in his hands. Its name was Mjolnir, which means lightning. Using it, Thor would be able to strike whatever came before him, with as mighty a blow as he wished. He could also throw it, and it would never miss its mark, nor would it ever fail to return to him. It was large enough to kill a frost giant, but small enough to fit inside of Thor's shirt. Thor held up his new, prized hammer. The Aesir were regularly battling frost giants, and this weapon would help to hold them back for good. Unless it was lost, but Thor would never lose it. One of the dwarves cleared his throat. The wager. Were these three gifts better than the first? All the Aesir, except Loki, chimed in that, yes, they were amazing. Truthfully, we probably would have said the same even if they were terrible. No one's a huge fan of Loki around here, but they are legitimately great. Loki, present these dwarves with your head. Loki smiled and yelled out, You'll have to catch me first, and burst out through the doors. Thor, his new hammer in hand, 
rolled his eyes, and walked after him. An hour or so later, Thor threw Loki on the floor, the trickster having a hammer-sized welt on the back of his head. The little dwarf stepped forward with a big axe, but Loki said he wouldn't need that. Technically, he had offered the dwarves his head, not his neck. Not quite realizing that there are many creative and painful things you can do to someone's head with an axe, the dwarves recognized that a deal was a deal. Then, the dwarf's brother whispered in his ear, and the dwarf nodded. It took another dwarf to come in with an awl, but soon the dwarves had finished their gift for Loki. That day, Sif got new hair, Odin a magic ring and spear, Freya a golden boar headlight, Freya the formidable ship, and Thor the hammer. As for the gift they made for Loki, well, they took an awl and a thin leather strap, and they stitched his mouth shut. I can imagine that all the Acer rejoiced and thought that, despite the amazing gifts, at least a few days of silence from Loki was the dwarves' greatest achievement. That's it for this week. I'm in the middle of moving, so I had to record this ahead of time, and I don't know what next week holds. It'll be a surprise for all of us. I want to say thanks to Michaela C., Tim J, Donna W, Thomas M, Meg D, Chelsea R, Brian Z, Joseph P, Nathan F, Baladitya Y, Brad P, Jonathan M, Anna Marie C, Eric D, Jill M, Alicia S, and Megan L for becoming members on the site. Thank you so, so much. You are amazing, and I really appreciate it. And there's also membership on the site. For less than the price of Vinderalls, overalls for your wine bottle, because sure, you can have access to extra episodes and source pack ebooks. Check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this time is the Cludi from Belgium. It's a nocturnal creature and ranges from an annoying prankster to a murderous monster, but don't all of the creatures of the week. It is most famously a type of black dog. For more on this, check out episode 9 titled Generations. It can also take many other forms, though, such as a cat, frog, bat, horse, or it just remains invisible. We'll talk about the murderous version first. The creature, in the form of a dog, bat, frog, or whatever, will have blue, glowing eyes, and will jump on an unwary traveler on the road alone at night and hook it with its talons. Sidebar, if you ever see a frog with talons, run away as fast as you can on the basis of it being a frog with talons, even if it's not a clue day. Anyway, they dig their talons in, and the more the person tries to fight, the heavier the clue they gets, until they either crush the person to death, or the person dies of exhaustion. Fun times. The prankster version is considerably more fun than being crushed to death, alone on a dark road. It takes other forms, like a wonderful tree with wonderful shade. If you decide to take a rest on a hot day, it will grab you, shoot you up as high as the clouds, and hold you there, laughing at your terror. It can also take the form of a neglected horse. If a kind stable hand or groom goes in to feed or brush the horse, it will beckon the helper onto its back. Once the person is safely on the horse, or not safely, it doesn't really care, then the horse will take off, running as fast as it can toward the river. It will skid to a stop, flinging the person into the river. When the person emerges with a scowl on his or her face, they will find the clue still in the form of an emaciated horse on its belly laughing hysterically, and pounding on the ground with its hoof. Long story short, don't approach frogs with talons. 
and glowing blue fire eyes on the road at night, of course, but also you apparently shouldn't rest under trees or help starving animals. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to the other music I used are in the show notes. Once again, this episode was brought to you by Weebly. If you have a project you've been wanting to get off the ground, check out Weebly. You can do an online store, start a blog, anything. And you don't need to be a web designer or know how to code. They really have impressive, professionally designed themes, and you can update your site anywhere, from any device. Creating a fantastic website shouldn't get in the way of your dreams. Join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free at weebly.com myths. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash myths. Weebly.com slash myths. Thank you so much for listening this week, and I'll see you next time.